Hello, we're live from London. Welcome to News Hour on the BBC World Service. I'm Ben James. Coming up later in the programme, Woodworm and the English Stately Home. Have a listen to this. It's the sound of individual wood fibres cracking under tension at a microscopic level. And it's this they're worrying about as they try to reduce humidity at Knoll in order to preserve the collection. How eavesdropping on what's inside the wood could give some vital early warnings. And we'll also be hearing from one of the Dutch journalists who was freed today after being held for a week by a rebel group in Colombia. But first, more than 3,000 people were evacuated overnight from tower blocks in London as the aftermath of the deadly fire in Grenfell Tower continues to dominate the news in the UK. A council in a different part of London, a borough called Camden in the north of the city, became the first to decide to evacuate some of its blocks because of safety fears prompted by the Grenfell disaster. We'll talk more about those evacuations in a moment. It's ten days now since the fire itself which was shocking for so many reasons. The horror of so much death and injury, the terror of being trapped in a tall, burning building and the reality of so many lives and homes ruined. The BBC's Paul Henley's been speaking to one Iranian-born woman called Nazanin Aklani, who lost both her mother and her aunt in the fire. Paul asked Nazanin when she heard first what was happening at Grenfell Tower. I woke up that morning, I had a text from my nephew. My whole family had tried not to contact me because I have a little baby. And he just said, um, I just want to know if Gran's okay. Call me. And he said, watch the news. I said, what do you mean? He said, watch the news. And I turned on the TV with my little boy by me and they, they were showing my mum's flat um, with the helicopter cameras. And there was fumes everywhere, flame. And I just knew straight away that she she hasn't made it and mom hasn't made it. In the days since then, just tell me what news you've heard and what you've discovered. We have heard very little, very little true facts. There has been a lot of angry people, rightly so, but a lot of attention has been taken to people being angry on the ground uh, and the survivors and what will happen. But it's been very difficult because, you know, as sad as I am for them, but God bless them, they have their lives. But we have lost, you know, my mother and my aunt and nobody seems to care. And there's been no help. There's been no information. We've been waiting for their bodies. And the only thing we get told is it's badly burnt. Your mother lived what floor of Grenfell Tower? Lived on the 18th floor. She had been placed there recently and I hold Kensington and Chelsea Council and the housing department responsible that they've murdered my mum because my mum was disabled. She walked with a walker. She was partially sighted. She was diabetic. They knew that she would have never been able to escape any fire. She couldn't have come down those stairs on a good day. They didn't care for her safety. They just put her in because it was a flat that nobody else nobody else wanted. Have you got any hope that there will be some form of justice in the inquiry into what happened at Grenfell Tower? I have no faith. I just pray to God that people are brought to justice. The story of Nazanin Aklani speaking to my colleague Paul Henley. While Grenfell Tower is in West London, 
Over in North London, Camden Council began those evacuations late on Friday night in four of its blocks. The cladding on them is similar to the cladding on Grenfell Tower, cladding which has been under scrutiny because it appeared to burn far too easily and allow the fire to spread. Camden Council also say there are worries about the gas pipes and fire doors in the four buildings. There is, they said, an unacceptable fire risk to the thousands of people who live in them. The leader of the council is Georgia Gould. The last thing I wanted to do was ask residents late on a Friday night to leave their homes and I've been with them all night and people have been distressed, angry, scared. Uh, It was such a difficult decision but I said to um, the fire services, is there anything I can do to make this block safe tonight? But the message was there was absolutely nothing I could do. And as the decision was taken so late on Friday evening, people were still being told to leave their flats in the early hours of the next morning, many of them not even sure where to go. The BBC's Sangeeta Maiska was there. London Fire Brigade today have done extra checks yep. and they've found some issues and they've detail of all those issues. So, so I've just arrived here outside Burnham Block, which is one of the five blocks that make up the Chalcot estate. The blocks are all really quite widely spread out. There's private housing and shops plus parkland. All of the blocks are pretty much the same, so they're all 22 storeys high and have that now very distinctive greyish-white cladding. The cladding that was applied to Grenfell, the cladding that has caused so many problems. Residents have now started gathering just uh, at the bottom of this block. Um, Many people looking really quite anxious. What's your name? Sarah Smith. And where do you live? Um, I live in Bray which is on Fellows Road, which is one of the blocks that have been evacuated. You seem quite agitated. I am, because I've got an eight-month-old daughter, and I found out about this on Sky News. No-one came and informed us of anything that was going on, and obviously I initially panicked and made sure that I got my daughter to my mum's first of all, and I've come back to try and sort out what's going to be going on, and no-one's given us any clear indication of when we're going to be able to come back, how much stuff we need to take. I saw it on Sky News. What have you packed up? Clean set of clothes, a nightgown, some knickers, toothbrush, medication and dog's food. And it's absolutely ridiculous (coughs) because we had the fire brigade there all day. Why evacuate us this time of night? Would you have liked the choice to stay? You can stay, but it's at your own risk. Swiss Cottage Library and Leisure Centre is the place where people who've been told to leave their homes have been advised to come. Outside are officials wearing high-visibility jackets, pointing people in the right direction. And there's been a steady stream of residents arriving here, some just carrying plastic bags uh, stuffed full of possessions. Others clearly have had a bit more time to pack and are bringing along suitcases. I've seen many, many families with very young children coming into the library here. I have got my laptops and some chocolates. For the kids? And uh, some underwear. <laughs> yes, that's it. You seem very calm. I mean, seeing what happened in the Grenfell, we are grateful. They've set up um, mattresses in the sports hall and they want people to sleep there. How do you feel about that? To be honest, it's a bit surreal, but... I'm glad they're doing it because it's a big safety precaution for Camden and all the residents. Three to four weeks, they said. 
I saw you earlier. Yeah. What, what have you found out? To be honest, nothing more than we already knew. Apparently, it's not so much the cladding, it's the gas pipes and stuff inside the buildings. Everyone I've spoken to is probably at the same position I am and they haven't got a clue what's going on. The BBC's Sangeeta Maiskar speaking to people evacuated in Camden in the early hours of this morning. Well, throughout the day, people have been giving their reaction to the council's decision to evacuate so many people. This architect, Dion Lombard, told the BBC it simply shouldn't have happened. I cannot see with 24-hour observation concierge with the fire department keeping their eyes on the buildings, etc. They're probably safer than most people in London. It does seem to be an overreaction, to be honest with you. And, of course, the danger is that it could become a precedent for for other buildings, and I think that would just become a bit of a nightmare, really. However, one of the smaller opposition parties, the Liberal Democrats, have today called for the government to declare a civil emergency across the country to deal with such evacuations. Camden Council did the right thing by promptly evacuating unsafe tower blocks, their president said, but those affected need to be treated fairly and with dignity. You're listening to NewsHour on the BBC World Service. Well, you might imagine it's hard to lose track of half a billion dollars. But that's exactly what seems to have happened in Mozambique. An independent audit looking at around $2 billion worth of unapproved loans for state companies has found that the country's failed to properly account for about a quarter of the money. When the existence of the secret loans emerged last year, the IMF and other donors suspended aid, which in turn has precipitated an economic crisis. Our Africa editor Mary Harper explained to me what the money was supposedly for. It was said uh, that these loans, $2 billion worth of loans, were to help modernise and develop the country's, especially tuna fishing. Tuna is a very lucrative uh, fish. Um, so the tuna fishing industry and also maritime security. So that was what this money was, was meant to go towards. And there were some companies that the money went to. But according to the independent auditors, Kroll, uh, who are a risk management company, uh, they said that these companies are basically not fit for purpose. And, for example, some of the amounts of money that they said that they paid for equipment and services were massively inflated, which suggests there was something funny going on within these companies. And whose money is it? Where did it come from? It was private loans that the government uh, secured. Any loan over a billion dollars, the government is supposed to have it approved. This whole thing went on in secret. Nobody really knew about it. So it was all very unofficial. The public didn't know that Mozambique's sort of foreign friends and Creditors didn't know about it, so this was part of the scandal. And when it came to light, organisations like the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, other foreign donors were horrified. They suspended funds for Mozambique, which caused massive problems for the country because a large part of its budget is foreign aid. And for years now, they have not been receiving aid, so it's had disastrous consequences economically. And has this come up in some kind of regular audit or was this as a result of an investigation because there was a whiff of suspicion? Yeah, basically the IMF insisted, it said, if we're going to even start talking to the Mozambican government about resuming aid flows to the country, we have to have an independent audit. So Kroll Associates was hired to conduct this audit and there's been a lot of foot dragging on the part of the Mozambican authorities in terms of releasing the information. This is a preliminary sort of 50 
24-page document that's been released by the Attorney General. But that this has been delayed for months because probably people in the Mozambican government are frightened about what is actually going to emerge from the findings of, of the independent auditors. I was going to ask about what might emerge. Is it just that this hole has been identified or is there a suggestion of where this half a billion uh, dollars may have gone to? We haven't got there yet and there will have to be a big investigation. Uh, there's also the whole issue is that if Mozambique, the authorities of Mozambique are going to investigate this and it looks quite likely that it is people at very senior levels of the Mozambican government who have somehow allowed this money to filter away perhaps into people's pockets, how is it really going to be trusted to carry out an investigation? Is it really ever going to win back the confidence of donors and indeed of other Investors. That's our Africa editor Mary Harper explaining the story of that missing half a billion dollars in Mozambique. You're listening to NewsHour on the BBC World Service. And coming up on the programme, a British politician invades the stage entirely legally at the Glastonbury Music Festival. Politics is actually about everyday life. It's about all of us, what we dream, what we want, what we achieve and what we want for everybody else. Well, we'll be hearing why not everyone was pleased with opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn's appearance at Glastonbury. Here are some of the latest headlines from the BBC newsroom. Egypt's president has ratified a contentious treaty giving two Red Sea islands to Saudi Arabia. And as you've just been hearing, Mozambique has been accused of failing to account for at least half a billion dollars worth of unapproved loans to state companies. This is Ben James with NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. What noise does a woodworm make? If that thought has ever crossed your mind, do carry on listening, because Knoll, a stately home in Kent in southern England, has been undergoing a $25 million restoration. And as part of the process, it's been listening very carefully to its wood. And the sounds it's been hearing are just the beginning of what may be a new early warning system for pests. Here's David Silito. So we're on a staircase, the great, great painted stairs at Knoll House. What is Knoll? Knoll is a 15th century house. It's one of the largest houses in the National Trust. And this? This is the ballroom. I'm Nigel Blade. I look after a lot of the internal environment conditions for care of collections in the Trust's houses. And everywhere, it's wood. That's right. We're standing on... An oak floor and we're surrounded by wood panelling, wooden oak doors and all, all manner of wood. And it's that woodiness that's the problem. Have a listen to this. It's the sound of individual wood fibres cracking under tension at a microscopic level. And it's this they're worrying about as they try to reduce humidity at Knoll in order to preserve the collection. So that's why there are sensitive microphones around the house. However, they've picked up some unexpected noises. OK, I'm looking at this little microphone by this cherub's feet on this very posh table. Have you heard any cracks? Uh, we've heard just a very few cracks. On That's this good, isn't it? That, that is good. That's what we're looking for, that the object is not changing too much. But also something else? 
surprisingly, we've heard the sound of woodworm on the microphone. Woodworm? Woodworm, yes. Do they make a lot of noise? At the scale which we're listening to, they, they are detectable when they come, we think, close to the microphone. This is the amplified and processed sound of woodworm activity in the timber. Is that eating? Moving? We're not entirely sure. And so, keen to know more about this newly emerging sound world, I went to York University to meet one of the few people to straddle the worlds of electrical engineering and woodworm. You can see the damage on this. This is a 500-year-old floorboard. It's actually basically hollow now. Just introduce yourself for us, would you? I'm Dave Chesmore. I'm a senior lecturer in the electronic engineering department at York University. And you like bugs? I'm a bugaholic. <laughs> in here, this is where electronics meets entomology. The acoustics that I specialise in is the vibration acoustics, which is listening to cockchafers underground, vine weevil larvae feeding inside strawberry plants, of course, the furniture beetle. And we've got planks of wood where the larvae are, in theory, making a noise. Are you honestly saying I can listen to a woodworm here? Yeah. OK, so I'll put the headphones on. Can you hear? Like clicks? Yes. They're biting the wood fibre. I'm actually hearing a woodworm eating. Yes. That's a woodworm munching wood. Yes. Do you want to hear another one? Oh, please. <laughs> now, these are little insects called psyllids. Jumping lice. Okay. So what you will hear here is what is thought to be the male... Going, uh, 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 and then the female responds. Uh, uh, uh. Cabbage stem flea beetle larvae. That is the sound inside. An old seed rape plant. And then we've got the cockchafers. That's a movement. The one I do like is the woodlouse. I have a woodlouse trying to climb up my sensor. Sound of woodlouse feet. Yes. We've been listening to woodworm, woodlice, psyllids. Mm -hmm. Is this just a bit of fun? Absolutely not, no. I mean, if you think about the potential economic effect of helping your buildings, reducing the amount of pesticide that you've got to kill off all these insects. You can put sensors in the soil, in woodwork, all over the place. Yes. And you're developing computer technology that can just recognise these bugs without humans having to. Yes, that's the objective, is to take the human out of the system. So as soon as there's a worm in your joists... It will shout at you and say, help. Hey there, little insect, don't scare me so... And so there it is, a woodworm eating lunch. A woodlouse on the move. And plans for a new sonic early warning system. For bugs. David Silito reporting. It's been the subject of debate for years, but finally it looks as if Jordan may be about to repeal Article 308, the so called Marry the Victim Clause, a provision that exempts a rapist from punishment if he marries his victim. A similar provision has already been repealed in Egypt and Morocco but remains on the books in many other countries in the Arab world. Jordan's parliament's expected to abolish it in a special session next week. I've been talking to Salma Nims, Secretary-General of the Jordanian National Commission for Women. It's a body set up to campaign for gender equality. I asked her about the practical effects of this law as it stands. 
currently a lot of men are getting away uh, with rape through marrying their victims. If they marry the victim for five years, they get away from the sentence. So the problem is not only that we have women that are being subjected through social pressure to marry their rapist, but also they are subjected to marriage that are dehumanizing to them. But at the same time, the, the penal code itself is not posing a process that makes rape something that needs to be stopped. And this is not just some notional law that makes this possible. This actually happens to women, does it? Do you know people who've been through this? Not every man marries the, um, their victims, but unfortunately, we've met women who were subjected to very bad treatment by the rapists after they got married to them. Sometimes they, the marriage would not even exist. Sometimes they are subjected to being prostitutes by the pressure of that husband. We don't believe that this is a real dignified marriage that's happening through this article. It's actually a way for this woman to become raped every day by her rapist. So what do you expect to happen this coming week in this special session of Parliament? On July 4th, the legal committee will start looking at all the amendments in the penal code. And there are more than 100 proposed amendments, which means that it's going to take a while. We're hoping that we are able to convince the legal committee to take the amendments as they are to the floor. Why has it taken so long to get to this stage, do you think? always there is this uh, controversy within the Jordanian society and at the political level that what comes first? Do you have change in social attitudes or legislative changes? We are arguing that we had 20 years of working on advocating for social change. We cannot keep waiting for something to happen by the society if there is no advocacy and no legislative changes. And so... If and when the law is changed, as you and we expect it to be changed, what work needs to be done to make those changes you hope for in society? The civil society organisations, the Jordanian National Commission, have been working with the society, with the youth, with local communities, in raising awareness of the fact that Article 308 is, goes completely against humanity, dignity and human rights. And we feel that, that actually there's a lot of responsiveness from the new generation towards that. Unfortunately, what we think is that the narrative, those who have the dominance in the media, those who reach, for example, even the parliament, because we know that parliaments tend to be predominantly conservative. But actually, if you go to the local communities, you feel that people understand that there is a need there to be alternative protection for women who are victims of rape. That's Salma Nims, Secretary General of the Jordanian National Commission for Women, talking about Jordan's Article 308. You're listening to a podcast edition of News Hour available twice each day straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The Food Chain, our podcast for foodies, farmers, and anyone who cares about what they eat and where it comes from. Or News Hour Extra, one topic every week, analysed each week by a panel of expert guests. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Ben James with News Hour. 
Two Dutch journalists freed from more than a week of captivity by a Colombian rebel group have been talking about what happened to them. Overnight and following conflicting reports, Dirk Bolt and Eugenio Follander were eventually handed over to a delegation of Colombian officials by the ELN. The name translates as National Liberation Army. They're a leftist group inspired by the Cuban Revolution and the second largest rebel group in Colombia after the FARC. They've taken part in peace talks, but they haven't reached a deal. Once free, the two men gave a news conference at a hotel in Cucuta, that's close to the Venezuelan border. One of the journalists covering it was Edwin Timmer. He's Colombia correspondent for Dutch newspaper De Telegraph. I saw them this morning at about 11 o'clock here in Cucuta, Colombia. They were in the hotel already for about four hours then, and they looked uh, remarkably well. They had about eight days of uh, being held hostage. And, of course, it's been a very difficult experience, uh, they told us in the uh, press conference. But there's no really uh, medical problem for either one of them. So I think they got out quite lucky. So what did they say about, first of all, the moment of their capture? Well, Mr. Bolt and his cameraman are uh, two television producers of the Netherlands. Uh, They were in the area to find the biological mother of a child which has been adopted years ago by a Dutch couple. So they were with a camera, with a microphone, just with their equipment. They were going through this area, which is controlled by the ELM, the rebellion army here in Colombia. The rebels, they held them on the street and they say, OK, what are you doing with the camera? What are you doing with the microphone? And they really thought that they were part of some plan by the CIA to try to infiltrate them. And it was very difficult, said Mr. Bolt during the press conference, to explain them, no, it's not that way, we're not bad people. And as far as their treatment by their captors is concerned, I understand that they, for example, had to move around a great deal in order to elude the army uh, that, that might be looking for this particular group. Exactly. After about one day already, the army helicopters were flying over the area where the uh, rebels held uh, these two men. And, of course, the rebels were getting a little anxious about that. So their strategy was just to march as as much as as long as they could. And uh, although Mr. Bolt told us that they did not really feel threatened by the, the rebels themselves, I mean, the rebels were really nice with them. They're almost friendly. But to go through a jungle really fast, really hard, with people who are like, who have kind of a, a commando education, and, and Mr. Bolt was on his tennis shoes, uh, well, that's not a very nice experience. So at some points, he really thought, I will not be able to make this. Now, there is a peace process ongoing in Colombia. The larger group, the FARC. There's been much talk about their disarmament. This is a different group, the ELN. Did anything get said about the peace process at this news conference? That's very important because since April of this year, in Quito and Ecuador, the government and the ELN, well, they try somehow to follow in the steps of what the FARC did and leave the weapons behind after about maybe 40 or or more years of fighting. So I asked Mr. Bolt about what he thought if this capture of them could somehow maybe affect the peace process. I really don't know. I cannot give this importance that our mistake of being there will influence. I hope not, because I think it's a valuable thing to go towards peace, also in that area, also with organizations like the ELN, 
because you will not survive without peace. And, but I do believe that the, the, the part of the country where we were is an almost forgotten part where people live in poverty and poverty they don't deserve because they work very hard under a very furious sun, they make long days, don't earn a lot of money and they really need more development. And Edwin, as someone who covers this conflict in detail in your work, is he right? You cannot deny that. I mean, like a lot of countries in Latin America, like in Mexico, like in, like in Brazil, there are some parts of these big countries where peasants really have a quite a difficult life. In this area, uh, north of Cucuta, it's about 600 kilometers northeast of Bogota, there is really no school system. There is no medical system. The only thing that you see of the real state is the army. And of course, that's not the only way to really help develop this part of the country. Edwin Timmer, he's Columbia correspondent for the Dutch newspaper De Telegraph. It's the first day of a World Cup tournament today, the Cricket World Cup for women. And maybe the fact that a lot of people, even cricket fans, might not know that perhaps shows the women's game has some way to go in terms of relative prominence to matches played by men. India beat hosts England and New Zealand beat Sri Lanka in the first two matches of the month-long event. It does have more prize money than ever before, ten times more than last time. But the $2 million and the extent of the coverage is still dwarfed by the men's game. In a moment, you'll hear Ishani Millwood-Bose. She's a 15-year-old cricketer from India who also spends time here in the UK. But first, I spoke to Neeru Bhatia in Delhi, a sports journalist for a news magazine there called The Week. India is a cricket-mad country, of course, so does women's cricket attract the same sort of attention as the men's game? Sadly not. I can say that with absolutely no amount of hesitation. Even as the match started between India and England, you know, I was on Twitter and I had just posted some tweets and I was getting responses like, where is the match? When is the match? People are online, they are on social media, they're watching TV, but this somehow doesn't register or hasn't registered enough. Although, you know, the media has done its small bit part in kind of playing it up, but again, not as much as hype in the papers, as there would be for a World Cup match for the men's. I was going to say, when the men play a big cricket match, social media in India is alight with commentary on it and reaction to it. So what needs to change? What would lead to the women's game becoming as big as the men's game? A lot of awareness, a lot of coverage would come if the girls lift a major tournament trophy like the World Cup. In 1983, way back, although cricket was always popular, Somehow the dynamics of the game in the men's game changed when India first lifted the 1983 Prudential World Cup in England. They were the dark horses. Nobody expected them to. Nobody knew much about one-day cricket. But after that, there was no looking back. I just hope and wish that this is the case here too. They've done extremely well in the recent series in the lead-up to the World Cup. There's been some awareness, but clearly nowhere close to what it will be for the men. What is the attitude towards women playing cricket? in India, amongst both men and women? You know, there's a very high level uh, rate of attrition. When they come through the ranks, through the age group cricket, to hold on to that talent, uh, they kind of uh, either let go because there are not so many career opportunities. It's not as bright a career or it never used to be as it is now. But having said that, there have been a clutch of women who've kept the fire burning and they've kept the game going regardless of the odds. So Ishani, let me ask you, how did you get into cricket? 
father actually played cricket a lot when he was young. And we live in India, we live in quite a rural place. And cricket was actually quite popular, so I used to play with my brothers in our back garden. And so how did you take it forward from there, playing not just in your back garden, but for actual teams? I enjoyed playing cricket in India. So when I came here, I wanted to get involved with the club so I, I could play like proper hardball cricket instead. So you've got two perspectives on this. You know what happens in the UK and you know what yeah. happens in India. Is there less of a setup then for teenage girls like you to get involved in an organised way? Well, definitely, yes, because there isn't anyone who actually goes around trying to get girls to play. So if girls play, it's from their own incentives. Why do you think that is? I think in rural areas, there isn't like an official way for a cricket to be played. Cricket is played as a, a game instead of like properly. So... There isn't actually anyone who can help encourage girls to play. And what about the reaction from other people, people in your family, other people in the place that you live? Do they find it unusual that a girl wants to play cricket or do they treat you just like they treat the boys? Well, my family loves me playing cricket. They don't have a problem with it at all. But I have come across many other well, boys, especially, who are very surprised when they see a girl playing. But the people who I play with, they're quite encouraging. They're used to having me around. But it's when new people join in and they're quite surprised to see me playing. And often they don't expect much, but then they see that I can actually play. And Nehru, perhaps people seeing the World Cup on TV, it being broadcast all the way through by Indian networks this time, might make it less of a surprise in future yes. to see women playing. Television plays a big role, undoubtedly, in popularising the game. You know, you don't have the proper structures in place for women's cricket everywhere. Uh, uniformly, like, it's uh, very widely spread in the men's game, right down towards the rural, you know, village level. So you don't have the strong club structure, which is there in many cities, which brings out talent, actually, which throws up the talent regularly. Ishani, do you see a future in the game? Could you see yourself perhaps playing in the next one, the next World Cup? but it's a bit of a long shot because I live in a rural area, so I don't know how I would get into the system. So if you had a message to the cricket bosses who might be listening, although they're probably watching the match, but if they do listen to this later on, what would you ask them? I would ask them to think about trying to widen the range from where they get their players from, because currently I think it's only from cities and places where well, richer people have access to clubs and stuff. But there's lots of talent that's wasted in rural areas and I feel that's something that people could work on. Teenage cricketer Ishani Millwood-Bose and journalist Niru Bhatia. Now to China and the pictures that have emerged from the site of a landslide in Sichuan province show the extent of the devastation. A field of rubble where a village used to be. More than 100 people are still feared to be buried under the rocks with rescue workers continuing their efforts through the night. A young couple and their baby are the only people to be rescued alive so far. The father described from hospital the moment the landslide hit their house. <laughs> At 5am, the baby was crying, so I was changing the baby's nappy when I heard a loud noise. I wanted to close the door. When I went out, the airflow and the water threw us back and stones pinned me down in the dining room. My wife and I slowly got up from the ground, picked up the baby and escaped. Villagers in the neighbouring village helped wash the baby and find us clothes. As we were walking to the entrance of the village, we met an ambulance. I only have skin wounds, nothing major, but I feel bad inside. Dozens of households in the village were completely buried. We were waiting for rescue. Some from a nearby village helped clean us and looked for clothes for us to change into. 
Then county officials came to help. They tried to transfer us out, and on the way we met an ambulance coming in our direction, which carried us to here. Well, just before night fell, I spoke to our correspondent Stephen McDonnell, who's monitoring the story from Beijing. There were 40 houses covered when the top of a mountain collapsed down onto almost all of a village. But the upside, I suppose, if there is one, is that rescuers have been able to find a few people alive underneath the rubble. Local officials are saying that a couple and a baby were dragged out and taken to hospital. Sadly, that couple, though, has another child still buried under the rubble. But finding survivors will boost the morale of the rescuers working in very tough conditions as they try and find others who might have survived. Now, I say tough conditions. It's raining. It's remote. The rubble, which has come down from the top of the mountain, has covered a strip of around two kilometres, which is blocking access roads. Now, teams have somehow pushed through and cleared enough of that road to get heavy digging equipment in there. But most of the images we're seeing are of workers using ropes and even people with their bare hands clawing through the rubble to try and find survivors. Uh, so it, it's a pretty grim picture as they struggle away there in western Sichuan to try and find anyone else from this village of Xinmo that might have survived. And they are extraordinary images that you talk about that are emerging from the site of this disaster that show the scale of what's happened here. How well equipped are the local authorities to deal with a disaster like this? Well, the emergency teams in Sichuan are used to earthquakes and landslides because they have a lot of them. I mean, in 2008, there was a huge earthquake there. People will remember around 80,000 people were killed. And so they're used to this type of thing. I mean, they have sniffer dogs, they have listening equipment. They know what needs to be done. The problem, of course, is getting to this remote area. Now, officials are telling us hundreds of emergency workers are on the scene and more to come. But they've, they've got to somehow or other get through these remote roads which have been blocked. Apparently a couple of ambulances have made it, and, and again, there are more on the way. But, but it's very difficult terrain. Uh, again, though, I suppose the upside is that those emergency workers are used to working in this terrain. I mean, it rains up there all the time. They're used to having regular landslides and disasters. It's the nature of life in western Sichuan, really. And is that what makes this region prone to such landslides, the, the climate, the rain that happens, the terrain, the combination of all of those things that often leads to, to things like this? Absolutely. People are thinking probably recent torrential rain has caused a, a large piece of a, the top of a mountain to dislodge and come down onto this village. And I've been to these areas. I've been to that part of western Sichuan and seen that happen. Uh, we, we travelled there to cover the earthquake in 2008 and I've walked through a valley with the entire side of a mountain collapsed. It's hard to describe it unless you see it, but into the middle of a valley. The, the land there is like that and I, I suppose, yeah, it's just nothing much you can do about it. The torrential rain is common in Sichuan. They have these landslides and the best they can do is be equipped to try and take on these disasters when they occur. What has the central government been saying about what's happened? Is this a big story in China across the country today? Yeah, absolutely. We're hearing right from the top the types of messages you would expect in China that no um, resources will be spared in terms of the attempt to try and save more lives. 
one thing that China does pretty well is disaster relief. I mean, they're able to mobilise the army, uh, the police in big numbers, helicopters, equipment, and so China is pretty good at dealing with natural disasters. And the, and the central government has said in this case they will be sparing no effort. Even though, you know, you look at those images, it's hard to believe that they can pull anyone else out of underneath that mountain of rubble that's come down on that village. I'm surprised, frankly, that they found anybody alive in there. But the fact that they have found some survivors, again, it will urge them on to keep searching. The BBC's Stephen McDonnell in Beijing on the desperate search for survivors after that Sichuan province landslide. A reminder of our top story this hour on NewsHour. More than 3,000 people have been evacuated from tower blocks in London after fire inspectors deemed them at risk in the aftermath of the deadly fire in Grenfell Tower. However, this architect, Dion Lombard, told the BBC that the evacuations should not have taken place. I cannot see with 24-hour observation concierge with the fire department keeping their eyes on the buildings, etc. They're probably safer than most people in London. It does seem to be an overreaction, to be honest with you. And, of course, the danger is that it could become a precedent for for other buildings, and I think that would just become a bit of a nightmare, really. The top headlines from the BBC newsroom. Egypt's president's ratified a contentious treaty giving two Red Sea islands to Saudi Arabia, and Mozambique's been accused of failing to account for at least half a billion dollars' worth of loans. This is Ben James with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. We're going to go back now to the 1970s and the four years that the Khmer Rouge ruled Cambodia. The regime was responsible for one of the worst mass killings of the 20th century. Up to two million people died of execution, disease, overwork and starvation. The Marxist leader Pol Pot's version of communism involved an attempt to create some kind of agrarian utopia. He emptied the cities, abolished money, private property and religion and set up the rural collectives where so many perished. In 2006, a UN-backed tribunal started trying former leaders of the Khmer Rouge. Pol Pot himself died in 1998. But one of those brought before the tribunal is the former senior leader and president for three years under the Khmer Rouge, Q Sampong. He's already been sentenced to life in prison for crimes against humanity. On Friday, at his second trial on further charges, he denied that Pol Pot's regime engaged in mass murder. He said the genocide against Cambodians was made up by the Vietnamese. I understood the suffering of the people and yet they called me a murderer. I am strongly and absolutely opposed to this accusation. The leaders of the party did not kill their own people. They would do so with what interest? This is an accusation created by Vietnam. Well, I've been speaking to a woman who survived the Khmer Rouge, although 38 members of her wider family did not. We're using her nickname Nan Devi because she doesn't want to get relatives who are still in Cambodia into trouble. She lost all seven of her siblings. With her own hands, she buried three of her sons, her husband and a mother-in-law. She told me what happened to her when the Khmer Rouge arrived. They forced us out of houses. Everybody in Phnom Penh were on the street. There was a flood of people. We were forced by the Khmer Rouge at gunpoint. 
So my two sisters were eradicated completely. Then my husband's friend, the whole family were lost. When we left my house, nine members of my own family and only three of us survived the Khmer Rouge in 79. So you lost some of your own children? Yeah, in three months' time, I lost three of my children. And then I lost my mother-in-law. The last person I buried was my husband. The aim was to eradicate the elite completely because those were the stubborn people. They understand a lot of things. So they start from the elite and goes down. How did you survive? We survived because the Khmer Rouge, when they came to search our belonging, they found a picture of Kiu Sampan, they found a picture of Hoi Nim, who were the Khmer Rouge leadership, and they asked us who they were. We told them that it's our friends. At that time, what did you know of Kiu Sampan? How well-known a figure was he to you? When we were forced out of the house on the street, we slept on the street. Then Kiu Sampan broadcast live, better lives than we had. Please, we came in peace. We will restore peace. So we were very hopeful. And then the Khmerus began to starve us. We realised that there's something wrong. As you know, Kiu Sampan has been speaking at the tribunal where he's facing more charges of war crimes and genocide. He's been saying that the regime did not engage in mass murder, that the Vietnamese made it up. What's your reaction to his statement? I am outraged at his statement. He is a liar and he is a coward. I want justice for the mass murder that they commit. I am not asking for blood, but I just want justice. Nan Devi there, not her real name, who lost most of her family under the Khmer Rouge. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. It's a chant that's been heard a lot around the Glastonbury Music Festival in south-west England this weekend. It's sung to the tune of the song Seven Nation Army by the band White Stripes and it's in praise of the leader of Britain's opposition Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, who's become something of a cult figure. And this afternoon, Mr Corbyn appeared on the main stage at Glastonbury, telling the crowd that he'd been inspired by the number of young people who'd got involved in politics for the first time during the recent general election campaign. Politics is actually about everyday life. It's about all of us, what we dream, what we want, what we achieve, and what we want for everybody else. Taking their time right behind my back. That politics that got out of the box is not going back in any box because we're there demanding and achieving something very different in our society and in our lives. Well, cheers there, but not absolutely everyone at Glastonbury is a fan of Mr Corbyn. Oliver Riley's there, he's a member of the ruling Conservative Party, so 
What did he make of Jeremy Corbyn's speech, if, indeed, he was present for it? Yeah, no, I wasn't, but I have seen the video, and uh, I can tell you exactly what I make of it. And I think it's very much the same old Jeremy Corbyn, really. I I believe he's a bit of a one-trick pony, with socialism being the ointment for all of society's ills. Uh, But he's right in the speech, in that many ways the youth of today have become disillusioned with politics. It doesn't really seem to serve them at all. And with Brexit and various populist goings on around the world, I think the young people of Britain were galvanised behind Jeremy Corbyn as the man they saw was was someone to get behind and bring uh, enormous change. And so, while that adoring crowd was watching Jeremy Corbyn. Where were you in the festival? Was it empty where you were? Yeah, no, I was just sat in my tent chilling out, really. Why do you think it is then that Mr Corbyn's become a bit of a cult figure now for people of your generation? I think it's because he's seen by so many as so compassionate and honest. And compared to Theresa May, who during the general election campaign was distant and vague and and who reduced her campaign to a just a series of slogans and sound bites and inane platitudes without actually listening to people's issues or explaining how she would ever help anyone. But I suppose the people who were cheering Jeremy Corbyn earlier on are people there who feel let down, who feel disillusioned by the current Conservative government and what they might say are decades of essentially Conservative politics that haven't delivered for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a massive reason why Jeremy Corbyn is so popular, because he is promising real radical change. Um, Whilst I don't believe that Jeremy Corbyn's way of going about things uh, is correct, I do agree with him in that there is certainly something that needs to be done. This conversation reminds us of the uh, quote from Winston Churchill, who once said, if you're not a socialist at 20, you haven't got a heart. But if you're still a socialist by 30, you haven't got a head. Where do you stand on that? Uh, personally, oh, it's, it's, it's a nice quote, and I think it, I think it makes sense. Really, I think it's easy to be compassionate and overlook the importance of of markets when you're young. But um, as you get older, and, and you know, you start working, you realise that incentives are so important um, in life, really. And Jeremy Corbyn's uh, economics, where you know he nationalised great swathes of industry by bonds, not really seeming to recognise that bonds are a form of government debt that accrue interest and will have to be paid back in the future by our children and our children's children. I think, you know, once once you're older and you do pay taxes and you come to realise these things, that's why Winston Churchill said, you know, when you're older, you probably won't be a socialist any longer. The view of Oliver Riley, a Conservative at Glastonbury. Thanks for listening to NewsHour. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.